Hi, this is Samir Kaji, your host of the Venture Unlocked podcast. In this episode, I have the great pleasure of sitting down with Ted Maidenberg, co-founder and general partner at Tribe Capital. Prior to Tribe, Ted was also the co-founder of Social Capital. For those that don't know, Tribe is one of the few venture firms in the world that has built a proprietary data science framework to evaluate and help portfolio companies and in fact, breakout companies such as Carta and Instabase. I'm so excited to bring you this episode as Ted has over 20 years of venture experience ranging from corporate VC, working at a traditional firm, and now co-founding two firms that are known for innovation. In our episode, Ted covers everything from forming SPVs, fund modeling, fundraising from LPs during a pandemic, and building long-term partnerships. Now, without much ado, let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Ted, it's so good to have you on the show. Thanks, Samir. Great to be here. So I've been really excited to have this conversation. And Ted, you've had over two decades of experience in venture working across a multitude of different firms. Maybe we can start by you taking us through your journey. I started in in banking right out of college and was doing media telecom banking at, at Credit Suisse and was sort of all set to continue a career in private equity, radio, TV, um, communication towers when uh, I had an opportunity to go down to AOL and help start their corporate VC. And, you know, this was 1999, you know, AOL was sort of Google, Facebook, Amazon, all wrapped up into one. So uh, really exciting to, to be able to go there and invest alongside operating teams and, and kind of see the birth of the first generation of internet companies. And, and to be quite honest, be able to see what happened in the aftermath of the, of the bubble bursting and, and what was real and what wasn't. That was a fascinating and, and somewhat painful time in Dulles, Virginia. So then after, after doing an operating role in Asia with Warner Brothers, I um, went back into uh, VC, but at a more traditional financially focused firm, U.S. Venture Partners, and um, really did the, the traditional apprenticeship there. Started as an associate, um, left as a partner. Early on, they were really fantastic at allowing the young folks there to, to sit on boards, to do deals and had some early wins, which is super important in your, you know, in your investment career and really saw what it was to run a firm to, you know, have uh, capital under management. And, and we had a we had a really a, a broad focus there in healthcare, IT and, and clean tech. So I got to see kind of how all these these groups work together. You know, after making it through the financial crisis there and kind of being at the step where, you know, the next phase was going to be. Uh, uh, being a GP, you know, the, an opportunity uh, arose to sort of start a new firm, and, and that was uh, Social Capital. So, as you know, three founders there, you know, Chamath, uh, who started the firm, and then myself and Mamoon Hamid. Chamath and I worked together at AOL and had known each other for a long time. Uh, Mamoon and I were partners at USVP. And, you know, I think, you know, part of the motivation here, it was around the time that Steve Jobs uh, passed away. And, you know, we sort of, you know, this is obviously pretty early in the kind of emerging manager trend that you're seeing now in the in the Valley. It was pretty risky to start something new. You know, I think we felt that, or at least I felt that we had kind of maybe hit the limit at, at USVP and wanted to, you know, see what it would be like to start something with a with a fresh team, uh, with folks that, you know, you could really choose who you're going to work with uh, around the table. That was really, you know, the birth of, of social capital. And then, you know, really lucky to be there for five and a half, 
you know, six years and bring on a bunch of additional folks, including my two partners now at Tribe, Arjun and Jonathan. As social capital was transitioning to become a family office, you know, I think everyone uh, there was really trying to figure out what the best next step was. And, you know, that's where after six, nine months of into my transition, uh, it really, you know, dawned on me that, you know, for my third and I would certainly say final act as a as a VC, I thought that, you know, teaming up with Jonathan Arjun and really continuing a lot of the work and themes that we had, you know, started at Social Capital, what was really going to be kind of the best and highest use of the skills that I had kind of built over the last 20 years. And and I'm really, really excited to be working with them. So you started Social Capital back in 2011 with Mamoon and Chamath. And back then, I think it was called Social Plus Capital. And it was on the heels of the global financial crisis and the liquidity crunch. What was that like? And how did it all come together? It was new to start a firm like that. But I think, you know, one thing we had a, a big benefit is in the first couple funds, a big piece of the capital, um, not only was the GP, you know, Chamath, uh, but also a number of individuals from the Facebook cap table, um, really individuals who ran firms who were who had large ownership stakes, uh, you know, in Facebook uh, pre-IPO. So I think that in thinking about how to launch a firm and, and how to get your first and second fund raised, I think the answer is like you just do everything and you leverage every piece of your network. And I think that was a that was a big piece of it. Well, we also brought in a few institutions from uh, USVP. I would say the first two funds there were, you know, I would say more of a family office, non-traditional LP base, and then, you know, transition to more of a traditional uh, base in, in fund three. Fast forwarding to 2018, and I really want to focus on Tribe. Later in the cycle of emerging managers, certainly I think in 2011, we were less than 100 firms that were brandly newly minted, and now we have well over 1,200. How did you approach the fundraise for Fund One? You had just rolled out off social capital. How did you guys think about the fundraise from the perspective of strategy? What type of LPs, institutional versus non-institutional? Walk us through the fundraise a little bit. It's one of these situations where, you know, you have this great plan and you you have a philosophy of how, you're, how it's all going to play out. And then, you know, the world changes and you get slapped in the face and you have to start all over. So I think, you know, when we when we approached the first fundraise, we really had three areas that we were focusing on. You know, first were uh, LPs who knew us from social capital, from USVP, and who understood the work that we did there, you know, would be willing to, to meet and, and hear the story. The second was going to trusted GPs that we knew that were more established uh, in, in funds that are with a higher Roman numeral, and really asking them to help to introduce the three to four, four to five uh, folks who they've really enjoyed working with. And then the third, I'd say a little more non-traditional, was really leveraging a bunch of the work we did on on SPVs. I know we can talk about that later, where uh, that was really targeted more toward family offices as a little bit of a lead gen mechanism. And then a number of those folks converted into LPs uh, as well. So you know, we would show them uh, a single company, we'd show them the work that we did, the relationship we had with the founders, uh, and, and that would give them confidence, you know, when you're raising a fund one, which is always difficult uh, to, to come in and, and join us. You know, I would say that spinning out is always a little bit tricky. Mamoon was off kind of at, at Kleiner, you know, doing a, a fundraise there. Uh, there was still a lot of swirl, you know, coming out of, of social capital. And so, 
the last thing I'd say is that a lot of the institutions which came into fund three at social capital, you know, there was a reason why they waited until fund three, because that's kind of where they're more comfortable investing. And while, you know, we were a team that had worked closely together, uh, you know, for four years, uh, we were still uh, a fund one. And I think that, you know, you have to understand that for a number of the discussions you're having with the traditional folks, that it is about building a reputation, you know, and a relationship that will pay off in fund two, fund three, fund four. That's really something that we we learned along along the way. And, and then you find kind of the first folks who are willing to to back you. And, you know, I'll say quite honestly, you'll never forget them because they, you know, they were there early. It's really a process of of numbers and a process of being determined to to keep going and keep running through walls. You not only were raising a fund one, you did it during a pandemic when on-site visits obviously impossible to do. How did that affect your fundraising strategy when the pandemic hit? Most of the work that we did was was pre-COVID. So I would say that there was certainly some final decisions into our final close of fund one that maybe got delayed or uh, got pushed to fund two with some LPs. I wouldn't say we were too affected uh, you know, by it at, at those final dates. We had, we'd already done a bunch of the in-person meetings. Folks had been on site. Uh, that's certainly going to help us in, in future fundraisers, uh, we believe. I actually don't think um, we had too much of an effect uh, from COVID. I had a conversation with Elizabeth Yen from Hustle Fund earlier, and they have three partners. And they broke out responsibilities by partner. One person was really focused on heading up the fundraise. How did you guys do it at Tribe? Taking a step back, I think something that was really important about bringing the three of us together was just how different and complementary, I believe, our, our backgrounds are. You know, I come from the traditional side, apprentice, you know, at a traditional VC and, and kind of a, a lifelong investor. You know, Jonathan, total polar opposite coming from a Stanford PhD and then, you know, starting companies, uh, you know, being a data scientist at, at Facebook and really helping to, to build that practice there before then you know, applying his his trade at, at Social Capital, now Tribe. And, and Arjun really coming from the founder background. I really give credit to Arjun, you know, at the end at Social Capital and at Tribe, he was the one who sat in the traditional investment meetings and learned a ton, and then sat with the data science and, and growth team and synced there and was the one who really said, hey, these two disciplines really need to work together. Uh, and, and that, I think, is really the beauty of what we built here at, at Tribe. The two disciplines do not fight each other. Rather, they kind of work hand in glove. And, and I think that was really a, a key insight we had when we when we started Tribe. If you were to take a high level view, all three of us are GPs. We're all founders of the firm. We're all completely equal in all senses of the word with economics and control. And so, yes, all of us are responsible for for fundraising, for finding new deals, for winning deals, you know, and 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 managing. But we all have minors, and and my minor would certainly be on the firm operations, uh, fundraising, you know, LP relations, etc. Arjun, kind of the king of deal flow, and you know, accessing angel networks, entrepreneur networks, uh, seed funds, and then you know, Jonathan, of course, is you know responsible for building out. The data science practice, you know, hiring that team, which is now, you know, about half the firm, actually more than half the firm now, uh, and and really making sure that that edge that we have at Tribe continues to grow and and continues to be invested in. Well, I'm so glad you spoke about the team construct and the complementary nature you have, given the different backgrounds you all come from. Uh, and I want to shift gears a little bit to the quantitative framework that you use. You had a great post 
back in 2019 that was around this quantitative approach toward product market fit. I've heard Tribe talk about the Magic 8-Ball and evaluating companies. Walk us through how that all works. Really, Jonathan started to, to kind of pioneer it back at his time at, at Facebook. And, and of course, there's famous stories about you know early product engineering meetings at Facebook, and you really weren't allowed to go into a, a room and say, hey, I think, you know, I think this is what's wrong with photo uploads, or you know, this is how the layout should look uh, without having user data to really to back that up. Uh, and, and, and while at Facebook, you know, Jonathan developed a bunch of frameworks that he used to really just say, hey, is this working or or not? Is there product market fit? Are we seeing you know the kind of behavior we wanna we wanna see from users? So now you know in 2018, 2019, 2020, if you look at the majority of software companies when they're out to raise a Series A or or, or Series B, they've raised their seed funds. They usually raised you know one, two, three rounds of seed. They have their pre-seed, their seed, seed plus. They've kind of wandered the forest. They've tried a bunch of different products. And usually they've locked in on one and they've actually been able to grow it to maybe a dozen customers or a couple thousand users. The purpose is to basically have that first slide that you can show to Series A or Series B focused VC and say, hey, um, we have growth. The product's working. Uh, we want to raise $10 million and you know really go and, and blow it out. You know, I think what we basically said, if that's the first slide that all these founders are using. They obviously think it's the most important. And, and by the way, so do we. Uh, we know that there's a lot of different ways to measure growth. There's a lot of different uh, methodologies to essentially you know, show product market fit. And it's really you know, incumbent on the investor, the you know, steward of capital to understand those signals and to try to build benchmarks and, and know you know, kind of what's good and what's not. And so that that's really what we built at, at Tribe is software and frameworks that allow us to very quickly ingest raw data from the company. So we look at that first or second slide and we say, this looks great. But immediately afterwards, uh, the founders are asked to dump raw data that, that we help them uh, collect from the uh, product database. And then we run it through the Magic 8-Ball. Uh, and, and that essentially kind of looks at a bunch of different factors, but the, the main ones are, are growth accounting, you know, cohorts and concentration. And we've now done this with 600, 700 companies, uh, maybe even 800 now. And within sectors like enterprise SaaS, we have a benchmark set of 150 to 200. So after we get this data, uh, the software very quickly transforms it into a 10 to 12 page document. Uh, and, and, it, and it benchmarks it and, and kind of gives us a level playing field to say, all right, how is this company truly performing? And where do we see the strengths and where do we see the weaknesses? So what do we do after that? Very quickly, we share it back with the founder. This is not about, you know, tribe sucking in a bunch of, of data and kind of being a black hole. There's a very important, you know, bedside manner you need to practice here where you give this report back to the founder immediately. And, you know, nine out of 10 times, the founder says, boy, I kind of knew my six-month retention was poor, but I could never see it uh, in the data. And it's, it's usually very informative and, and sparks off great conversations. And then, you know, if we like the company, we really use it as a roadmap to continue our diligence. And I think this is really, really important. 10 years ago, if, if I saw a great company, I was super excited by that first pitch and I knew the founder, or I knew the, the source, I would maybe send it to Mamoon and I'd say, hey, you need to meet this founder on the weekend ASAP and hear the pitch. 
and he would hear the same pitch um, and get excited or maybe, you know, throw up on it. Uh, Now what happens if I get really excited about a company, I don't just send it to Arjun to hear the same story. We run the eight ball. Arjun has this, you know, call it an X-ray or an MRI on the, the company's product market fit. And then when he meets with the founder, he's able to ask really deep, probing questions about, hey, this, this growth is off the charts. How did you think about you know virality early in the product? Or hey, your 12-month uh, churn is, is really high for your benchmark set. What are you doing to approach it? How are you thinking about it? And it just gives us a, a way to kind of go much quicker into the actual substantive diligence versus you know what I'd seen in the past of my career, which is a bunch of folks pattern matching and having gut feels. And then at the end of the process, they're like, well, we better make sure the numbers fit. We really try to make sure the numbers, the quantitative piece is done very early in the process and allows us to have a a guide. At the end of the day, it's always about um, a human making the decision. And and we'll always have that piece at the end. We have to evaluate the team. We have to evaluate the market competition. But all of that is driven by the data work we do very early in the evaluation process. Well, it's such a fascinating approach. And the question that popped up in my head while you were describing it is, how do you balance between that quantitative framework and the more qualitative heuristic way of judging and evaluating deals? How does that work within the uh, partnership? The eight ball is not definitive. There's always shades of gray. And, and these are early companies. So it's really hard to you know say that it's going to give you a black and white yes or no answer. You know, some, sometimes it will give you a pretty clear no that, hey, you know, we're just not seeing uh, signs of life here in, in the product. And that doesn't mean it's a bad company. It might mean that they go raise a couple more million dollars of seed capital or, you know, they have to pivot. But sometimes it'll say that. Other times it will be screaming, guys, pay attention right now and, and get your work done so that we can evaluate whether or not we want to make uh, give a term sheet or not. Most of the time, it's sort of in the middle. And, and I think that's where the, the human you know, side and our past experience will really help guide us. And again, team is super important at this early stage. It's really hard to, to understate that. But when I like to think about team, it's not just how they make that first pitch to you. It's when you show them this report and you sit down with a common set of facts, there's not a lot of uh, opinion in the report. It's, it's very kind of factual. You can see how they think. And you get a sense of what it's like to be on their board and how they will react to adversity and how you know they would think about getting around it. That's a big piece that is sort of a second order effect of what the eight ball does. It's not completely grounded in data, but by having this common language you can speak to with the founder, it really allows you to get a sense of what they're going to be like post-investment. So you mentioned six to 700 companies have gone through this quantitative data exercise what do companies think about it? I suspect that there's a fair amount of value that a company can derive by getting that report in the early days. What have you seen work and what's just been the general feedback? If we pass, you know, we obviously we give this report to the founders and we do have kind of numerous anecdotes where, you know, they they will say, hey, we've sort of changed the first five slides of our board deck to kind of mirror and have it, have it be informed by by the eight ball. So that, that's great. If we invest, what we like to do, and this is kind of how a lot of this data work started, is we will forward deploy our data scientists 
in order to really teach the company how to fish um, and make sure that they're running their business, you know, using kind of the best techniques that we know from looking at hundreds of these companies. And then specifically, when they go to raise a subsequent round of financing, we will go in, uh, rerun the eight ball. And a lot of the insights that we see there can help power slides in a Series B, Series C deck by showing how they've improved in some of these more uh, nuanced metrics. Once you're in the tri-portfolio, you have full access to the team and our data science team really splits the time, their time between new deals and portfolio. That's a really important aspect of what we do. I want to move back to Fund One for a minute and the construction of it, and in particular, the LP composition. You had mentioned earlier that many of your Fund One LPs were prior LPs and some of the SPVs. So starting with the SPV strategy, moving into the fund strategy, it's something that a lot of fund managers struggle with, given that it's really hard to get people to move quick enough. How have you managed this and how has it become such a core part of the tribe strategy? Before we sort of had a brand and developed the network and, and had the repeatable process, it was very opportunistic. Uh, you know, We started with a couple uh, companies that came out of the social capital portfolio, like Carta, Front, Relativity Space, SailDrone, Cover. These were all companies that we knew well, and, and in some cases, we were able to spin it out of social capital. In other cases, just continue to invest in, in the companies. So that kind of start with what you know, and, and a number of these founders just wanted to continue the relationship with Tribe. And so we found ways to, to kind of get access. As we were fundraising in 18, 19, uh, I'm sure you've seen everyone wants more and more direct access to companies and not just invest in funds. And so I think we had a good kind of product market fit there where we were not only able to say, hey, we're raising our first fund, but here are three to four you know, direct opportunities that we have access to that we think are, are really important. By the way, here is our eight ball. Here is the data work that we've done. And even if you're not interested in investing in the SPV, you know, take a look and see how, you know, we think about companies and the kind of discipline and frameworks that we use to, to evaluate. So it was really helpful not only to raise the SPV capital, but also just to get folks comfortable with the work that Tribe did. And, and, and this is important, fully spun out of social capital. If you're raising a new fund now and you used to work at a previous firm, um, LPs will certainly give you credit for your track record and the work that you did, but they also understand that you were part of a team. And until you're sort of on your own, doing your own work, uh, executing your own strategy uh, as Tribe, as your new entity, I don't think you'll get full credit. And you probably shouldn't. You, you need to kind of be on your own. So I think that was that was critically important as well. You know, at the end of the day, the last thing that we did here, you know, really after we closed Fund One is made a very strategic decision as a partnership to make sure that the core flagship fund was benefiting from the SPV activity. And that's when we introduced this thing we call the kicker, kind of our, our, our code name. And essentially what we did is we took all of the GP carry from the SPVs, and we contributed it at basically zero cost to the fund. And what this allowed us to do is, number one, take off the table any perceived conflict of interest uh, between the SPV activities and the fund one activities. We actually think they're complementary, but there could be some some way that one of these companies hits big and the GPs are getting SPV carry before they get fund carry. And so by contributing it, uh, it all goes toward the same waterfall and, and we're fully aligned. And then secondly, I think it really helps us think about 
that long-term relationship with the company and with our LPs. We, we really saw this as a long-term greedy move where we're giving up a little bit of economics uh, in the first couple of years. But you know, if you want to build a 10, 20, 30-year franchise in the Valley, you need fund one, fund two, you know, to get to 1x and above as soon as humanly possible. You know, we saw that by contributing the GP carry, you had some early winners uh, because the SPVs were later stage uh, investments. Uh, and, you know, they were able to really see that the, the team was focused on that, that long-term vision. If I remember this correctly, it sounds like the uh, carry from SPVs are allocated toward the main fund and the main fund LPs. But what I'm really curious about is how does this affect your portfolio construction, particularly within the ratio of capital for initial investments versus follow-ons? At USVP, we had really like a one-to-one initial to reserve ratio. You know, that was pretty typical in kind of the 500, 600 million fund size. You know, social capital, I think we were maybe two to one, but more maybe one to or one and a half to one ratio. Tribe, it's probably going to look more like three to one, you know, really kind of think of 75% of the capital going into that first check. That forces two things. Number one, you need to be able to, you know, pick uh, really well and, and have a low loss ratio. We, we don't really tune for a low loss ratio, but it's absolutely a benefit of using the eight ball and you're really having a sense of product market fit be, before we invest. And, and then, you know, the second thing is you you need to be able to support your companies. And, and that's where, you know, First Look and a very active program like that allows Tribe, you know, it's still the, the three of us uh, controlling the capital, uh, but whether it comes from the fund or, or via SPVs, it, it doesn't really make a difference to to the company. You know, we're going to continue to support the company. Not, and by the way, not just in the next round, but, you know, all the way to to IPO. And, and then the last thing I would say is, you know, when you when you have more of your capital in those first couple of rounds, that's how you drive a really high multiple fund. When you're kind of under 200, under 250, as far as fund size, uh, I think you're really going for a big multiple. And obviously, you know, if you you look at the history, it's going to be, you know, the majority of your shares uh, in a winner were bought in the first round that you invested. And then your reserves, you know, certainly help, you know, continue to defend ownership. But, you know, if, if the company is doing well, the valuation is going up. So you're buying fewer and fewer shares with each subsequent uh, round. What you just mentioned is really interesting. And as I think about building a firm where your fund has the best potential to get to that 3x plus return. Getting ownership early is just so incredibly important. But how do you think about it? Because I've seen a few ways to do it, right? So one is do what you're doing, which is put a lot of money in the initial check, get your ownership early when it's the cheapest, use your SPVs for reserves. The second is using an opportunity fund. And then the third often is just raise your fund size. What is the future for Tribe? It sounds like with the formalization of First Look, that's really the direction. But how do you compare those three different strategies? To cut to the chase, I think we'll raise our fund size judiciously and really you know, have First Look grow where the, the amount of capital put out by you know, First Look could exceed the, the funds you know, on a steady state basis, you know, because those companies are, are later stage and are, and are raising more and more capital. But I don't think the first look, the SPV model is for everyone. It's a lot of work. You really have to invest in it. You need to herd cats uh, a lot of the time and you have to be very deliberate about it. It's not something you can really do part time. We don't do that. We, we really invest and, and have a bunch of our 
you know, resources uh, dedicated toward that. And again, we all think we think it all helps to serve the long-term vision of, of Tribe. So, I mean, Opportunity Fund, Growth Fund are certainly interesting. Probably the biggest issue I have with that is unless you have the exact identical GP structure, um, really what you're doing is you're building kind of two firms within within one. There can be issues where the incentives are misaligned, where, you know, let's say the growth fund is doing well, the early stage fund is not doing so well. One set of GPs is wondering why they're giving a tax to the other set of GPs. It's really running two firms at, at, at once. And I think that's something that we we wanted to avoid. In addition to the fact that, you know, if you are an early stage fund and you have a growth fund, you have to be thinking about this kind of on both sides. You have to think like, like both kinds of investors. And I think we would rather stay focused on identifying companies that are having these product market fit inflection points, you know, doing that initial check-in, you know, if if it's scaling, if the data is is checking out, then we can continue to invest uh, via, via first look, you know, versus really, again, running two different strategies under one banner. That makes total sense. I want to shift gears a little bit. And one thing I love about the tribe story is the fact that you guys have incorporated innovation in how you think about building the firm, how you invest with First Look and the Magic 8-Ball. What are some of the other innovations that you think are possible in venture? We see things like rolling funds, but I'm curious from a broad standpoint, what are some of the other opportunities you see? I think that there are absolutely you know opportunities to look at unrepresented geographies, unrepresented founders. I think we're seeing a number of really fantastic firms pop up to really access those markets. And it's not, again, it's not just the founders, but it's the end markets that they that they serve. You know, you just have to look at sort of ubiquity of smartphones, uh, not just in the US, uh, you know, in, in Western Europe, but uh, across the entire world to understand that that knowledge economy is now really going to be accessible to half the world's population pretty soon, you know, two thirds, three quarters of the world's population. And I think that is creating opportunities that, it's probably even hard to, to fathom right now. I think that's that's certainly one. Different ways to to raise you know capital. I don't know if that's actually in an in innovation as much as just a you know a technique to to break in. And then you know what I what I think I would say to you know to folks who are looking to innovate here, it, it just takes time. You know, it took us you know five six years to validate the work that we did to really make it actionable and you know, able to invest hundreds of millions of dollars behind. What's really interesting now is that you can start on a smaller scale in angel, you know, seed investing, even into into series A and, you know, have a thesis, you know, Jonathan was always very clinical about this, you know, have a thesis, run experiments, iterate, you know, and then continue to to refine. I think the one thing I would say is you, it's hard to sort of just launch a brand new fund and say, this is innovative, it's totally different. I, I do think that one of the issues with venture capital is it just takes five, 10 years to understand if what you're doing is is good and repeatable. And so you have to have patience when you when you think about you know, launching some of these new models, which is probably why the history would say that the, the asset class has not been that innovative, even though the companies we're investing in are extremely innovative. You have to be willing to kind of tear it up. And I think the biggest compliment I would give, you know, my former partner, uh, Chamath was like, do not let any of the past affect kind of what you're doing. Think about it from a blank slate of paper. Ted, do you think that's driven by the fact that LPs generally don't like things that look too different. I always hear about, we want differentiation, but not too much differentiation. 
and with some of the new models, and even, I'd, I'd be curious, even with things like First Look and Magic 8-Ball, were LPs comfortable right away? Or did they say, hey, this just looks and feels too different, and I just need to see how this is going to work in practice? The innovative ones, the ones who maybe were a little more risk-seeking and, and forward-looking, I, I think they would say that they know about the dispersion of returns in early-stage funds. And you know they made a bet on us that you know the, the work that we do, the strategy we have, you know, could lead to one of those outlier funds uh, on the upside. The broad majority uh, of LPs who have been investing in the asset class for a while, if I were to stereotype, I would say that they're still in this belief that there are sort of eight to 10 firms that see all the good deals. And if you're not in one of those, uh, you're really going to be kind of picking up the the scraps. And I think that has really changed, not only, you know, with the number of companies being founded and the amount of great outcomes. But uh, if you just look at how fundraising works, especially during COVID, entrepreneurs are able to talk to 15, you know, 20 different firms. And the trick is really being there first and, you know, seeing something special, seeing that product market fit first. And then you can compete against anyone, even as a brand new brand. We saw that at Social Capital and we see that now at Tribe. And so if, if there are going to be more, you know, or new winners in venture capital, I would say that if you're going to try to bet on an emerging manager, make sure they have something which is really different and unique and not just kind of a, a slide in a deck, but look at the team. You know, again, we have about half of our investment team really with a data science kind of, you know, technology background versus traditional I- investor. Uh, we're not just giving lip service to the data science and, and, and the magic eight ball. This is integral in everything that we do. You know, Jonathan is not kind of a second class GP sitting in the basement. He is, you know, part of the management company, part of everything that we do here at, at Tribe. And to do that, I think, you know, myself, maybe Arjun as well, had to give up a little individuality, the ability for a GP to kind of fire his or her shot because they, you know, they have a long track record. Uh, we have to give that up in order to serve you know, the, the greater goal, which is to use, you know, data to really underwrite opportunities. One of the things I always think about is just the number of new firms that are coming to market. I think this year I've talked to no less than maybe a hundred new managers that are looking to launch. And I think that's going to continue as venture appears to be much more democratized than before with opportunities, as you mentioned, across geographies. I think there's a massive opportunity for underrepresented managers to bring more diversity into founders. You've co-founded two firms. And what's always struck me is how thoughtful you've been in terms of all aspects of building a firm. What advice would you give for those people that are thinking about launching or in process of closing their first fund? My advice will be much more to kind of multi-founder firms versus sole GP. I don't have experience on the sole GP side. It's a blind spot uh, for me. But you know, the number one piece of advice I, I would say is it's really about the, the team that you're starting with. Uh, the trust has to be so deep and it's really hard to really know what it's going to be like, not in the good times. The good times are pretty easy at VC, you know, closing an LP or winning a deal or, or, or seeing an exit. But it's really about the, the bad times. So what I would say is look at your founding team. You know, my advice would be make sure you have a founding team where you can be equal in control and, and economics as you're starting off. You know, trying to stratify it too early is is just really difficult. And think about 
when one of your founders calls you and says, hey, we're going to completely miss our numbers for this year. I'm firing my head of sales. And you know that investor who was about to give us a term sheet? You know, she just called and said that the firm is out. So you just got that call from your founder. How long is it going to take you to tell your two partners that this is going on? And how can they help you? And what's the next step? If your your instinct is a sort of like, well, let me try to fix that on my own, or or boy, I you know I'd much rather you know share you know with Jonathan and Arjun that we just got a really nice term sheet. You know that that's not people that you want to go to battle with because. It is completely a, a battle, especially for those first, you know, five, 10 years of, of running a firm. So make sure that, you know, these are folks that you are going to want to support. You're going to want to complete their sentences. If they need to switch board seats with you, you're going to do it at, at the drop of a hat. Uh, and it's really, you know, going to be, you know, people who are going to support you really when when things are tough, uh, when things are good. This this job is like brilliant. It's like being at a craps table when you know a, a a guy or a girl is rolling for an hour. You're all winning together. It really shows itself the difficulty of building a firm. You know, when things are bad, uh, and you're going to go through those the, those periods and and make sure you have folks who you trust and, and who you want to share that bad news with even quicker than the good news. Well, you're so right to point out that the importance of partnership dynamics and relationship. I think that oftentimes people underestimate the difficulty of doing that and how important it is during those really, really difficult times, which are invariably going to happen during a partnership. There's a direct relationship between those thousand firms or those hundred firms that you met with and the growth of these new managers and bad partnership dynamics. You know, of course, part of it is the market and more LPs, but there's certainly a, a big chunk of these new managers, you know, being started by very talented investors who just said, hey, I want to do this differently. I couldn't agree more with that. And it's why I'm so happy that you brought it up. Last question I have, though, is are there things that you guys do, the three of you, as a partnership to make sure that the culture and the relationship stays as healthy as possible? Well, I won't lie to say it's been easy during COVID, um, as we've all had to do everything over over Zoom. We we have obviously a very active group chat. You've got to do that, and I think you probably can measure our partnership product market fit by the amount of work and personal stuff that we throw up on on, on our group chat. You know, that's one thing, and that's easy. We do three kind of booked syncs uh, a week where the three of us get on and we talk about companies, we talk about LPs, we talk about personnel. That's really important. It, it helps that we had done this job before at a firm. That's the biggest impediment, I think, to someone who's starting from from scratch with a with a new team is that you could you know maybe you've worked in an operating role with someone before or I don't know you went to school with them or you know you angel invested or you were friends with them you don't really know what this job is like until you're actually deploying capital um, it was you know advantageous that Jonathan Arjun and I had all sat in this seat before doing exactly what we're doing now at a at a previous firm that's important as well right well this has been amazing Ted. Thanks so much for being on the show. Of course. And thanks for all your support and, and First Republic support. It's been integral to the success at Tribe and really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode with Ted. To learn more about him or Tribe Capital, be sure to go to the Venture Unlock podcast on Apple iTunes, where we'll have detailed notes from the show. Hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlock episode as soon as it's released. And while you're there, if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. Until next time.